Hello and welcome to another rousing edition of Trending Topics with BB. I am your humble host, Brooke Brown. Well, hence the BB, where we are back for an exciting episode with a lovely guest. But before I introduce who this guest is, I do want to remind you to log on to the website, which is TrendingTopicsWithBBPodcast.com. There you will find links to all the platforms where you can find this podcast, as well as the merch and the social media and the latest episodes. So without taking too much of your time, uh, please, if you are listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere where you can leave a favorable rating, please do so uh, and comment. It helps the algorithms suggest this podcast to other listeners and it helps more people find lovely conversations that i'm about to introduce so enough of the housekeeping i do want to introduce my guest Uh, my guest and i have been friends uh, over the years we met as you will hear on this episode uh, a couple years ago i wanted to speak to mike st jules about his career in trance music as in other dance music as well as his take on some current events within the industry so without really ruining our conversation and further ado, I want to introduce my conversation with Mike St. Jules. Uh, so welcome to Trending Topics with BB Mike. Um, I know we chatted, we met in 2019 at Miami Music Week. It's been, it seemed like ages ago, but it's only like two years. Um, I know, I know. It's been crazy. And yeah, I mean, and it was sporadic. Like going to Miami was pretty sporadic at that point. Cause like I, there was like maybe two years I didn't go before that. But um, I would have gone every year since 2008. Um, and then it was just like, okay, I was going in and out of like going. And then I was like, I was undecided at certain times and whatnot. So, but it, it, it's always been a good time. You'd be able to meet so many people out there. I mean, it, it almost feels like ADE in some ways. So it's definitely a good time all around. Get to see all your artists, get to see people you never meet. You know, it's things like that. Yeah. And uh, I've been wanting to go for ages and I able was able to make it happen. And I also went to Winter Music Conference. So I did that in the day. And then part, it was such an ex- exhausting week, but it was worth it seeing everybody uh, and meeting people and learning at the conference. So exactly. Uh, yeah. So awesome. So I wanted to talk to you because we'll get to your new releases in a minute. Uh, I know you have some really exciting stuff that people may or may have not heard right now, but I wanted to start with your background. I wanted to start with how you, like your love of dance music and trance and and kind of how you have been building your career as a producer as well as a DJ. Can you start there? Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> so basically when I was young, young, like I would say five, six years old, I mean, I, my dad, um, so we're Haitian. So we, we, we come from a very, you know, musical background in that sense of the compa and everything like that. And, um, you know, he's played a lot of like Haitian music in the house when we were young. And then he migrated to like other genres of music, um, specifically like R&B and pop and um, artists like Commodores and artists like Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, you know, very rhythmic type songs. Freddie Jackson's another one too. And I used to listen to a lot of those records, Lionel Richie. Um, and a lot of them just had a lot of dance oriented um, instrumentals in their songs. And I always gravitated towards that. Um, and it was always, music was always around for, for us. And that's just what something that always kept our spirits up and everything. And um, it really wasn't until high school that I started to um, listen to a lot of like commercial music, dance music stuff. So as cheesy as it sounds, like Castles in the Sky, you know, things like that kind of, yeah, that kind of stuff. Like I used to listen to it on KTU, um, a lot of Long Island uh, radio stations, dance music like Party 105. And um, 
it eventually just grew into uh, just understanding what that music was about. And um, it really wasn't until at that point um, to start producing the music. Um, I started going out to shows in 2003, 2004. Paul Van Dyke was the first artist that I really, really saw at the Roxy in New York City. And um, but prior to that, um, I was introduced to a state of trance um, by someone. And it was in 2003. So once I started listening to that radio show, I mean, it completely blew everything out of what I've listened to prior. I mean, you know, all, of course, respect to, you know, the mainstream music and everything like that. But the underground sound from A State of Trance and all the artists that Armin had put up there for support, you know, I really like changed my view on like what this music was. And I would like listen to that music for a, a long while um, before, you know, I really wanted to produce the, the, the genre itself. And I just like, I didn't want to sit around um, just listening to the music. I wanted to get involved and um, being able to DJ that as well. So it's like, I had to, I kind of combined the two at, at the same time. I was producing and I was DJing at the same time. And I was just learning how to make music. It took me four years before I was able to first get my first release. Um, and that was with Ferry Corsten. So it was in 2008 on Flashover. I had my first release, but um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's kind of like the quick way of, of going about like how I started listening to, to the genre of the music. Um, Tiesto was like one of the first artists that I've seen live and as well. And um, listening to In Search of Sunrise, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. And, you know, it just, it was just a lot about studying that art of trance music and progressive because it's stuff that you don't hear normally um, through, through regular radio. I mean, especially back then, 2002, 2003, you know, that stuff, it was not, I mean, as I, at least for me, it wasn't as common to hear that. So listening to, you know, the European sound uh, through a state of trance helped me learn other artists as well. And it just keeps digging. You keep digging through and you find all these new artists and then you find a new appreciation for music in, in a whole. So um, that's kind of like how I really, really started to get into the music and DJing as well. So um, there was a point where I was, I was buying records in 2004 and I would spend all my money really like every week, um, just like at least a hundred bucks every week buying new records. So 10 to 12 vinyl and um, just being able to practice and make a radio show out of that. And um, I didn't do my radio show until 2005 with Party 107. That was the first online radio station. And I would do the Universal Sounds radio show every week. And um, I'm sure we'll probably get more into that. But yeah, I mean, that's really... The, the foundation of how I started uh, listening to the music, being able to produce the music and then being able to DJ the music as well. Do you think uh, your background growing up listening to many genres that you said with your dad and um, kind of influenced you? Cause I, I felt the same way. Like I grew up, my dad was a musician in Latin percussion. And so I grew up with music in the house and then I, the same with me, it wasn't until like I was in high school where I found kind of like the end of the 90s, middle school, high school, where I found dance music. So do you think growing up in a house where you were surrounded by music kind of led you to be open-minded to finding the underground sound? Yeah, I think, again, um, just having music in the household, yes. I mean, that 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 is a big part of, of just being in the atmosphere of music, generally speaking. Um, I, I probably would have found it another way at some point, but I think my dad really jump-started that um 
just having that atmosphere of music around and then the types of records that he was playing and all that other stuff. And I mean, again, our, 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 our Haitian background really does influence his, his thoughts on bringing music to the table in, in our atmosphere. And yeah, I mean, that was that, I mean, he's definitely a big part of the reason why I got into it. I mean, he wasn't directly like, you know, teaching me to play piano or anything like that, but um, it was just enough to get me to start listening to the music and learn about artists. And then, just gravitate towards that at, at, at later point. And then, you know, then everything else was history in terms of just like finding the genres of music and dance music and everything. And I wanted to find, you know, a similar stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, he was definitely like an influencer for sure on that. That's yeah. So was there anybody in your family, like your father or anybody that, that played instruments or was it just having, you know, more of a festive atmosphere growing up? No, I think it was just more of a festive atmosphere. I think my dad like played guitar for a little while, um, but no, I mean, my mother likes to sing too, but nothing like to the point where um, they weren't a band or anything like that. It was just like, it was just something that was here for them. And then they were like, okay, you know, do whatever. But my dad just, you know, they, they, they have a passion for music and that's what they like. And, you know, that's kind of what it was. So they're more of like fans really of, of music in general. And then I just gravitated towards what they were into. And then, and then I just found my own path after that. Awesome. So you mentioned your first release back in 2003, you said, right? Uh, with Black Oh, uh, no, it was two, 2008, actually. 2008, um, sorry. Yeah, 2003 was when I started going out to clubs okay. and getting into the vibe of the atmosphere. And uh, 2008 took me four years to get the first release. Um, I had met Ferry uh, at Avalon in New York City. Um, I think it was the old Limelight. I think that was what it was called. And um, I brought a pile of records, actually, some of the records that I bought, you know, was some of his releases. And I was waiting eagerly for him to approach the, the booth area where he was going to perform. And, you know, I just showed him the records and if he could sign them. And we had a conversation briefly, you know, I was able to hang out with him in the booth, you know, um, I think Pete Muzzo from from Glow Panorama Productions, uh, who's also runs Echo Stage in Washington, D.C. He was with him and um yeah, we had a great conversation. And then, uh, you know, he came back, Ferry came back uh, for Crowbar. He did a six month residency. Um, Crowbar was another legendary venue in New York City. And, uh, you know, every month we've always had a conversation about things. And I got his email and, you know, we were able to have a conversation um, about music. And I would send him a couple of tracks and see what we could do. And then the the first release was Sunlit Clouds was what it was called. And um yeah, I had given it to him and he just told me to, you know, do a couple changes to the track and whatever. And, you know, then he was able to say, let's sign this one. And then I did a flip side track. I think it was called Space Field. I think it was. And um, it what was pretty cool about it was that he actually called me that I think like the night before the release just to discuss about like how the marketing was going to go for it. So it was pretty surreal for him to actually give me an actual phone call. Like, I don't know any artists that really do that these days. But um, it's cool. I mean, it's cool to actually just have that, you know, that moment where he would call and say, hey, you know, your release is coming out tomorrow. This is what we're going to do with it. And uh, he would play that track for, for quite some time thereafter. So I was able to, you know, be at some of his shows when he when he uh, played it. So, yeah, I mean, that was my jump start into the into the industry. So I was able to get in that way. And uh, yeah, from there, it was just it was it, I think that really I, you know, I thank him and the team at Flashover for giving me that opportunity. Uh, because that really put me into the stratosphere of of the of, of the of the European sound and, you know, just having other people recognize who I was, you know, in that. So after that, you know, I had a couple of releases, uh, remixes and things like that. So that really kind of jump started the process for me. So do, do you think, well, I it's it's interesting because it's great that 
that you had that opportunity, but it seems to me like the, like you just mentioned, the process is totally different now. Obviously there's a lot more uh, people like myself or yourself that are out. And so I guess the numbers, the sheer numbers kind of makes it a game where it's like, can you get in touch with who you need to get in touch with? But do you think the early networking that you did solidified kind of the career you're, you've been able to build? And do you yeah. think that going forward with the way things are, I'm not COVID aside, but do you think that it's just a lot more difficult now because there's so many producers and so much uh, kind of to, to do and to get stand out in, you know, with unique sounds and unique ways of creating a track these days? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's like the same thing for DJs, too. I mean, I think like if you were a DJ in the, like the early mid 90s and late 90s, even, and then you were you had a couple of tracks, I think you were able to solidify yourself a lot earlier because there was there wasn't that many, I guess, producers that were DJs as well. And, you know, having opportunities to tour around. I mean, you can think of certain names like that. Um, but for me, yeah, I mean, I think um, having that opportunity to show, you know, that I was a fan first and foremost, like I always am with with artists that I've had records and he signed them and we were able to interact that way. I mean, I don't know if there's any other like, I don't know if there was any other way at the time to really get an opportunity like that. I mean, you could have just been a fan and be like, hey, you know, you know, can you sign my shirt? You know, it's like it's different when you brought the vinyl or a CD even, and then spoke to them and be like, you know, this was, a, this was the opportunity that you could have for that interaction. So um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely, you know, a very thankful moment for me to be able to do that. Nowadays, I don't, it's so much harder now. You, it's hard to interact and hard to get a hold of anybody. I mean, yeah, COVID aside, I mean, if you weren't in the backstage or you didn't um, have that opportunity to kind of like meet them somewhere, it, it's a lot, it's a lot tougher. Um, there's just so much things that go on too, in terms of, um, I guess when you're submitting demos, I mean, are you able to submit demos directly to the artist? It's, it's very, it's very hard now. I don't, I can't even imagine what that's like, but, um, oh, I can say I, I actually have, because in the beginning it was just almost, it was pretty difficult, but, um, I met artists early on and I was very thankful and I had, I got the right emails and I was in the right place at the right time. That was really what it was. And, you know, I was able to find my way through that, through that weed, weed through it and um, being able to submit music to the right people as opposed to just some kind of uh, demo email bin that nobody ever checks. So, um, yeah, being out, I always say that. Some people say that they, they don't believe that. But for me, it's like early on, you had to go out. You had to go out to shows. You had to show your face because if you didn't show your face or anything like that, who, who knows who you are? You can be out you know, in the Midwest somewhere and, you know, there's a show and you don't go and, you know, the opportunities lost. So I've been very thankful to be here in the city. Oh, I'm not in the city. I'm in Long Island, but going to the shows in the city, um, you know, all the artists would come there. I mean, that was, you know, this, this was the best opportunity for me to be able to go into shows and interact with those artists. So um, yeah, I think the vinyl was a key factor in me being able to approach these artists and talk to them. Uh, it was the same thing for Armin too. You know, when I met him, you know, I had records and um, I remember what it was. It was in 2004, I want to say it was um, he was supposed to play Central Park, which would have been impossible for me to uh, approach him um, at that point. But the event got canceled, I think, due to rain and they moved the event to Crowbar. So as soon as the doors opened, I was one of the first people in there. Of course, I was like a fan. But, you know, I brought records for him to sign. Um, David Lewis, um, who was his tour manager or slash manager from David Lewis Productions and um 
you know, they say, yeah, come up on stage. And I was able to go up on stage and then show, you know, um, him the records, if you could sign them. And then we just interacted that way. Um, and then, you know, there was times where we were like on online chats during the early days of a state of trance. He used to be in the MIRC chats and we were able to talk through that. Um, so, and then he recognized me from the events and you just always show your face every time. And then he remembers, and then you can establish some sort of friendship. And then you kind of just work on, you know, sending material to them directly. So that's, that's just the ways that I've been able to do it. Um, you know, some other people can just, you know, make music and then send it to a demo and somebody luckily hears it and they're like, okay, this is it. And we get you in that way. I mean, there, there is, there is that way as well. And it still works, but for me, you know, being able to, to, to go out to the show directly and, you know, being able to see them, it just was a good blessing because now, you know, I've had all these other opportunities that come about from doing things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's again, there's so many ways to do it, but yeah, that was my way to do it. And, and it worked out because it was more, more intimate that way, I guess you could say. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess maybe I feel the same way. Like I'd rather like interact and, and, but I'm also an extrovert. So I think those <laughs> introverts kind of have that hard time of like, all right, do I, do I talk to the manager? Do I go, you know, try to get backstage? There's just, it just, I've seen it happen in real time where it's they, they seize up and I'm like, no, you got to do it. But right, I, got, right. I also understand that that's just not everybody's cup of tea. So I just it's curious just to see and, and going forward. I mean, obviously, COVID has reset the whole industry, but. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to see what happens now with with because, you know, COVID has made a big change. And I think <laughs> I know every, everybody's lives are affected, first and foremost, I will say that. But the nightlife right now has been hit the hardest. I think because, you know, it's the bread and butter for a lot of people and venues and, um, you know, a lot of, I mean, COVID is, you know, you can't be around people. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way it is. So when you have this large atmosphere, you know, open, even open air events, uh, you know, Brooklyn Mirage is one of the venues here in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a mass, it's a massive venue, but you can't put all these people, thousands of people together. It just won't happen that way. I mean, now the, I guess the, the understanding is that maybe by the fall, you know, venues are properly insulated and they have ventilation systems that are proper, properly created and, and maintained, then it's possible that you can start to have people. But, you know, even then it's going to be at capacity. And then you think about, you know, how much can you charge people to come in and well, all these artists that are going to come over now from overseas. And now you even see that those travel bans and everything like that. It's, I mean, how long is, you know, it's going to be a while before we even get back in some sort of fashion with this. And I don't know if it's going to be the same as it was. It might be in the new normal. There could be a, a very big difference in terms of the capacity of how, how many people can be in a, in a place. You know, we just don't know. And it's 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 it sucks. But, you know, uh, hopefully at some point we could get something like like what we used to have back. But as of right now, it is it is very difficult to to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful. I want to be optimistic. Don't get me wrong, but I'm also kind Absolutely. of a realist. And I'm just curious if if this ASOT 1000 is actually going to happen in Utrecht because, I mean, you're you've opened it up to the world to come. <laughs> and like like we just talked, the travel bans and and the, yeah, are you going to be vaccinated? Are you not going to be vaccinated? That whole right. that whole thing. Yeah, debate. I mean, yeah. I, I of course I I'm. 1000 is amazing and I would love to go but I I on the other hand I'm like I'm not I just don't even if even if it still happens will certain country people be allowed to travel and yeah there's yeah, just too it's, much it's, too many the, questions 
Yeah. Right. That's that's kind of been the irony, really. You know, it's like a thousand episode. One thousand is like the the one that you want to go to. And, you know, COVID happened and that's yeah. what changed things. But, you know, I I don't know what could have been said. I think maybe, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to talk about stuff like this because yeah. you don't want to assume things. But, you know, um, they're taking a chance now thinking that, you know, everything might work out OK. You know, they're talking about it being in Utrecht. So my assumption is, I don't know, like I've been there before, um, but it's September, early September. So it's it's still, still going to be warm. So maybe what they might do is try to do an open air event instead. Um, they're, okay. they're talking about it doing it for two days, but I don't know at, at that capacity what that's even going to look like. You know, I, I don't, have no idea. Um, it's really hard to say. I don't, I think what my guess is, if I was going to make a wild guess is that they're just going to postpone it. Um, kind of like what what happened with EDC. They'll just postpone it and they will just roll the tickets over to the next date. Um, so that's what my assumption would be. I don't think that they'll get to September, but it's just going to depend on the restrictions and things. I mean, again, there's still these travel bans and like if you go and then you've got to come back, I mean, like what's the restriction of that? Like, we don't know. I mean, there's just so much that can change in, in what, in eight, nine months? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much time. So I don't know. I mean, we have, we'll have to see. I mean, but- I don't I don't think it's going to happen in September, but we'll we'll see. I don't know. Great. So I, I do want to get to your releases, but before I get that, just to kind of along the lines, I did notice that you uh, well, you joined you had a interview with uh, Dave Dresden on Club Quarantine. So we'll get to that in a minute. But because of Club Quarantine, I want to talk about Twitch because you also just did uh, a set with Ajuna, correct? On yes. Channel. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I want to talk about the opportunities on Twitch because I've found myself a little addicted to Twitch uh, in the last few months. Just, you know, it's just great to have on. Like I've seen more live vinyl sets from DJs in the last like four months than I have in my life because mm. everybody's at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I exactly. have access to their collection and they'll pull out old records and it's been nice. Um, what is your thoughts as we talk about touring, getting back to normal? on the opportunities that Twitch has afforded a lot of DJs in this time. Yeah. I mean, with Twitch, um, I think in the beginning, just like Facebook live, um, you were able to do stuff. Um, you were able to, you were able to uh, perform in front of people that probably would never seen you. And I think that's a great blessing. Also, it's like you go on Twitch and you have a little bit of a following people can see you and interact. Um, I don't know what the, what the end result is. Like, what is the, what is, what is that? What, what do you get out of that in terms of, do you get more followers? Do you get, you know, people buying your music eventually? I mean, it's just, it's free advertisement to perform. Um, then there's restrictions with audio. Um, and that's been a big problem. I think with, you know, even I, now you don't even see people doing Facebook lives now because there's restrictions and the same will go for Twitch. I mean, you do a recording and then if you have it on video on demand, then half of your set is muted. So what is really the point of, of doing that now? Um, I've heard, um, and I haven't done it yet, but I'm looking into doing it, is um, Mixcloud. Mixcloud, I heard, has no restrictions whatsoever in terms of advertising and playing sets and everything like that. I think that just the royalties are, I think royalties are involved in the streaming process of that, I guess, um, with artists getting paid. Um, and I think that's what that's the reason why Twitch had been so enforced with you know limiting what could be played and things like that. So... Um, I don't know. It's just with Twitch. I mean, it's, it was good in the beginning, but I don't know now. Like I don't, I, I, I used to do some sets on there and I haven't done it recently. Um, just because of the video on demand. I mean, what, if anything now I would just go on there 
And when I go on there at the end of the set, it just disappears. So that would be the end of it, you know, because if it's pointless that if you do video on demand, um, then your sets, your, 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 your songs are muted. So nobody's going to be able to really hear the full set. So um, with something like, like the Injuna live stream though, I, I think uh, they actually are going to put it on YouTube. So it didn't stay on there at, after the end of the recording. So it didn't stay. Um, but yeah, that was a great time to, to be able to play. I decided to do a two and a half hour set. You know, I asked them, okay, so you can, as long as it's an hour, but I said, let's do two and a half. Um, Cause it really takes the time to play the vinyl. Vinyl has to play the whole way through. You can't, you can't just cut a track or edit it or anything like that. So a lot of that, it was just um, taking the time and finding the right songs and whatnot. I know it was a little bit uh, heavier with one or two artists on there, but it was, it was fun. Like I was able to mix that with, with uh, CDJs and just, um, yeah, it was, it was just a, a good time to kind of, you know, showcase myself. And there was a lot of people and, you know, you get some fans and things like that. So I guess that's the real reward of doing live streams, but you know, again, you know, there, there is some limitations post the, the set that, you know, if you're not there at the moment, then after that, you, you don't get the full experience. So it's, it's, it's an up and down thing, I guess. But, uh, you know, again, I've heard Mixcloud is a good source to do this without any restrictions whatsoever. And I think YouTube has also been okay with it. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think Twitch has some limitations, but it's still a good source to use if you I uh, don't really have much issues. And I, and I believe um, if you have songs that could potentially be flagged, I guess you could contact the record label. So if you've dealt with rec certain record labels and you're in a promo pool and you're getting their music, you could ask them to whitelist you so that this way, you know, if a song of theirs is being played, it's not going to be muted. And I think it goes the same for your own music. I mean, I think for your own music, whoever released it, you want to just make sure you talk to them and say, hey, I'm going to play my track on a live stream, but I don't want it to get muted afterwards because it's going to be on video on demand, things of that nature. So, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, it's a learning curve for everybody because of what's going on. But it's just interesting to see kind of the influx of DJs and performance artists on Twitch or or Mixcloud or whatever platform because of COVID. But it's been great because it's like, where else are we getting live performances right now? It's like, yeah, there's 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 none. But yeah, I mean, pretty much is when you're online. I think when you're online, that's kind of what you what you'll get. So I mean, yeah, again, that's a great way to showcase yourself and to be seen because there could be somebody who lives in Russia. And they will probably never see you live, but because you're on Twitch, they'll 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 have the chance to see you. So I mean, it's in in that way that that works well. Great. Well, yeah. let's talk about your releases because I'm excited. All right. So first, let's talk about your remix for Gabriel and Jesen because we brought it up with Club Quarantine. Um, I know based on the the talk you had with him, kind of how that came about. Kind of you you've been friends and open for them many times in New York and just kind of developed your relationship with them. But the process, I, I hear that the process with working with Above and Beyond and Ajuna and, and Remix, this is a little bit unique for the industry. So can, can you talk about kind of, obviously it, you know, your relationship with the label and them helped propel you to be chosen as one of the remixers. But I guess for those people out there that you know have a, a remix in mind or a bootleg, can you kind of talk about how that process went along? Because I'm hearing that it's a little bit more unique than maybe some other labels approach the process. Yeah, I don't really know a whole lot about their process in terms of how they sign material. I just know sometimes like um, 
I don't know. It's, it's tough to say. So, I mean, to, to start, I'll, I'll go back to like one of my first experiences with the label was to, to do a remix. I did a remix of super eight create, and I just did it on a whim. I didn't even contact them to do it or anything. I took the original vinyl and I recorded it. And then I took the parts from the, from the original and put it into the remix. And that's how I was able to get the parts from it. And then I played by hand or in by ear, the original melodies from, from super eights uh, track. And then I just, I had something and then uh, I don't remember how I contacted them. I must've had some email of some kind, actually, it might've been Neil. Neil is one of the A&Rs. Um, he was also, he's also known as John O'Beer and he was able to work with the label at some point. I don't remember. I don't know the whole history of that, but I sent it to them and then they sent it to Mika. Mika is super eight. And um, I'm sorry if I say his name wrong. I'm not sure <laughs> if that's right or wrong, but um, he, uh, I think there was only one thing that I had to make a change in. And then they were like, okay, let's sign this. And that was it. There was nothing else to that. Um, and they put it out and it was in 2011, we did this. Um, and my, I guess, again, this is one of those things where I had the opportunity to see above and beyond. They played at Pasha old sound factory, New York city. And, you know, I was able to interact with them, um, and just being a fan first and foremost, but it was always, we've always talked, but it was never like, and this is, you know, Pablo, Tony, Jono. Um, we just always, we always saw each other. It was like, Hey Mike, you know, it's like, what's up, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was just kind of small talk. And then eventually, you know, um, you find your way and finding the right emails and making contact. Um, I've had a lot of no's throughout my whole process with, with getting music signed. You know, it is not an easy thing. Um, and I've been trying with them ever since they um, released to Super 8 Create, the, re the Mike St. Jules remix. Um, but they had supported some other tracks of mine on Trance Around the World at the time. And th that's kind of like how I was able to, you know, have that um, on their radar a bit, but yeah, I've had a lot of no's for like nine years <laughs> before I had, you know, what's, what, what's going to be now the release, I guess we'll talk about it a little bit, but um, the, the way they work, I, I guess, you know, it's just, they, they, I guess the process is that they want to make sure that the songs fit above and beyond sets. And I think they want to make sure that the tracks feel right. And if they don't feel right, then they're not going to sign it. But if they think that there's something there, then they'll work with it. And I think that's what's happened with a couple of these, and especially the Gabriel and Dresden remix. Um, Dave and I, we met in 2005. And a lot of these, a lot of these people that I've met is, has been through the New York shows, believe it or not. It's all been that. And I met him and Josh. Um, I think they were playing with Marcus Schultz. And I had brought records. Same thing. You know, signed, talk. And then just interact later. I mean, that, that was a bit more sparse with them, though, because I never really had seen them you know, as often. But um, I think it was probably through promoters or something like that, that I had an opportunity to open for them. Actually, the first time I opened for them was at Webster Hall. And um, there was a guy who played before he played kind of, you know, he played harder than, than, than normal. And they were like, oh, maybe this is probably not the best way to start. But I had the opportunity to play after them. And when I did, I played um, very progressive, very slow stuff. And they loved that opening set. And from that point forward, you know, we had a, we had the talk where, you know, let's bring Mike again to, to do an opening set. And that's how I was able to do the Cielo show as well. Um, and, you know, and they, they love the way that opening set was. It's, you know, that, that's the beauty of DJing. It's not just playing what your style is. You know, if you're a trance guy, you're playing trance records. It doesn't work that way. It's about being able to play that, that, that deep, you know, slow stuff, 
you know, 118 BPM, build it up to 122, 123, um, but have a journey, but never, never go overboard than, than what the main headliners are going to do. And it's a bit trickier with them because they don't play like that hands in the air stuff. I mean, I mean, sure they do some of them, but a lot of their tracks are very like, you know, progressive, you know, and it's, you know, it's a, that's the challenge. So you want to find stuff that even goes below that sound. So I spent a lot of time going through B-Port and all the other stuff and my promos and just have a, a set going. And it's a three-hour opening set. So I had to just really get that going. But yeah, I mean, I was able to open my eyes and do a lot of that, uh, just going and listening to other genres of music. It's not just about trance or pro you know progressive trance. You, know, you got to go to progressive house and house and techno and, and tech house and deep tech. There's all these other genres out there that you know you have to sit there and study with. And I love all that stuff. So it was an easier way to make, make that happen. Um, so when it came to the remix, we actually were supposed to do, I actually did a remix of Jupiter, which was on the first album on, on the Injuna label. And we had talked about that and I did two versions and I don't think anybody's heard them though. And one was a clubby track and one was a more progressive slow version. And uh, I think Dave liked them initially. And then I had sent, I had permission to send it to the label and at the time i think it was now, who's now the label manager gareth jones and i had sent it to him directly and they liked the progressive version and we went back and forth made some changes and then abgt 300 happened i think that's when it was around that point and they kind of had to park their tracks and maybe that's probably some of the ways that they work is that if there's a big event happening they're just going to pause some things and after like a couple of weeks, we came back to it again and they were like, well, I think we're, we're good with what we have already. So we just decided not to do anything with it. I actually ended up taking that remix and making it to, oh, I wish I can pull up the, uh, the EP, but it was an EP on Colorize, on Enhanced. So it's actually one of the tracks from the EP on there. It's under my MSJ alias. So I reconstructed the track to make that a whole different thing. So um, that one didn't work out. But then again, uh, when we got the next album coming out, uh, I had heard um, a vocal from Jan Burton and it was on their Instagram account, the G, G, and, G and D inside track. I think that's the name of their handle. And I heard the vocal and that was actually the, I thought that was going to be the first track on, that was going to be one of their tracks on their first album with Injuna, but I don't think it made it. I think it was going to be for this album. And when I heard that, I contacted Josh. I was like, dude, I got to do this. And um yeah, I mean, I talked to Dave about it. He gave me the parts happily. I made some, I, I just made a great, you know, a remix and I sent it to him and he, him and Josh had just a comment about the breakdown. They wanted the pads to be the original, like sounding original. So that was his only comment about it. And um, I went back, I made the change. I did have a different climactic drop. Um, and Gareth told me we should, you know, we should try to, dial it back a little bit, make some changes to it. And then I made some changes thereafter. And then I sent it to Dave, Dave liked it. But then it was quiet for a while again. And um, I actually was able to send the, the finalized, potential finalized version to Jono Grant. Um, so he liked it, talked to Gareth again, and then talked to uh, Dave again about it. And then Dave asked me for what was the, what was the final version? Cause we had like four different versions of this remix before it was actually finalized. And um, then we were able to just say, okay, we're going to put this together. And it was actually together with um, the Flares track, which we'll talk about, um, which is, will be the first, my first track with the label original. 
and they liked that and the remix and they were like okay let's do something with these and then we'll put them out so that's kind of the story of how the remix came about so it was me not doing you know not being able to get the jupiter remix out but then this one worked out so second time's a charm in this case right and do you think the backing of well obviously what's been unique about Gabriel Dresden's last two albums is the Kickstarter so that they've run to to get them, which has been a new kind of thing. I've backed both of them. Okay. Um, and and then was in terms of the remix, was it always in the plan to do a couple of remix albums? Because I know they did it for the last album and now they have done it for Remedy. So is that just kind of the idea of kicking out a, a remix album and allowing other people within the industry to have their take on some really great tracks. I, I'm finding that's kind of a pattern, which I like, but was that always in, in the thought process or was it just, they were going to release a couple remixes and then it just grew into a remix album? Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways on how remix albums are approached. Um, I, this wasn't, there was no plan. I mean, I didn't know anything about a remix album for this, but I, you know, cause sometimes what they'll do is they'll do certain remixes. I forget the one that uh, Cosmic Gate did. Um, and that was just alongside the original. So the original, then there was a remix. And then um, the keep on holding, I mean, Elon Bluestone and Mauro Levy did one, you know, before even mine. So um, so I was like, I was a little disappointed initially because I was like, oh man, I really wanted to do that, but I was able to get it later. So um, I think they did just, that, that was a, just an opportunity to have that put in there. Um, some remix albums don't happen, but I think it's just a way to extend the life of the release um, and just have other people have their takes on it. Um, one other example was like Armin Van Buren's Lost Tapes, which is just a compilation of, of remixes that have never been released. And I had a remix of Precious and it was on one of the estate of, I think it was 2014. And uh, everybody was asking about um, the release for this. It never got released. And then finally in July, they had a Lost Tapes thing. I didn't know about it. Somebody had told me on Instagram about it, that it was there. And I was like, wow, okay, there was just, there it is. And they had just a compilation of other of other tracks. So that's an, another it's like it's kind of like a remix album, but it's just a compilation of just tracks that have never been released. So bootlegs and whatever. And um, but no, I mean, I would have assumed that there would have been a remix album because usually that's how a lot of these labels do it. But then there are some that just release an album and then they'll just have a couple of remixes associated with the single release for a couple of them and then they move on. So um, I think with Remedy, I think that's just. They had a, they probably had a plan for it, but I didn't know anything about a, a, an album for a remix album for it. So, I mean, it's great. I mean, that's cool. I mean, but I think I think it's stronger for an artist to have a you know the, the there can be a single like for example, keep on holding original and then Mike Angel's remix, and it's a single release. That I think is a bit more impactful versus um, an album, just because you kind of get lost with the other artists. So if something else is better than your stuff, then you're just kind of like under the cut, I guess, but it depends, depends on how many artists there are, how many tracks there are and all that. Um, there's other things that can go into it too. I mean, if you get, you know, remix fees or if you get any royalties from doing remixes and things like that, then, you know, then it might be a better look. It might be better for you income wise, I guess, but, um, or, or more, um, more clout, I guess, for, from being part of the remix release. So it depends. I mean, everybody has a different perspective on it, but for me, yeah, I mean, that's, I didn't really know much about um, remix album, but I, I assume that there would have been one. Awesome. So let's talk about flares. that's coming out. You just mentioned it and, yeah. and your original work. I'm excited to, to hear the release. 
Yeah. Uh, so Flair. So basically, um, the last couple of years I had been contacted by someone. His name is Prussian Jeet. We call him Prussian. And he's a classic pianist, but also producer in, in uh, Ableton. And he approached me about wanting to work with me, just do some stuff together. And he gave me some ideas. And I was like, all right, let's do some let's do some co-writing. He wants to be a co-writer. I mean, up until this, that point, I was doing everything myself. And what he'll do is now he'll give me some conceptual ideas. And if I think there's something cool about them, then I'll work with those ideas, add more stuff to it. And then I'll start writing the record around the ideas. And Flair's actually was just an idea he created, um, some, some melodic ideas. Uh, he came up with, um, not, I don't know, remember if it was the lead, but I know the, the chord progression he had come up with and some other like bells and whistles stuff, ornaments is what we call them for surrounding stuff. And then I just took it, took those ideas and then just start extrapolating them and make, made something out of it. And then, you know, he's another second pair of ears. He's like the Benno to like Armin, you know what I mean? So it's like we have, you know, two heads are better than one. And that's that's definitely a great atmosphere to be in. And it's great to get another set of ears and another perspective on the tracks. So we, we've been doing that now for about three years, I think. And Flares was an idea from, I think, I want to say about a year ago, something like that. And, you know, I made a track out of it. And, you know, I think that the 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 punchline to the track is basically the lead. So, um, you know, I was able to come up with two bell layers and then make the lead out of it. So, da, 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 you know, so it plays with the chord progression as well. So um, that one was sent to Jono. I sent it to him because uh, I was sending him a bunch of just tracks because we talked like in the summer. And, uh, you know, we was like, hey, let me just send you some stuff. And he's like, cool, let's just do that. And um, yeah, Flair's one of them. And he said this was probably the best one out of the out of the stuff that I had given. And I made some changes. And he's like, yeah, cool, man. I'm going to take this to the A&R team. Um, and this is just another way. Maybe that's how they work, too, is like he would take it and put it into the meeting. And I think what they do as well is they put stuff in an A&R box. And I think that they have like a roundtable discussion about the music that gets put out and stuff. So um, I had heard Tony liked the, the track as well. And I didn't need to make any changes after that, after the initial stuff with, with, with Jono. So we were able to just get that one right away. That, that, that worked out well. Um, but prior to that, a lot of the tracks that I had tried to send them was basically like club bangers and stuff like that. Because that was what I was used to doing too, instead of the progressive um, but it seems like the progressive route is really kind of where I'm going with a lot of the new stuff, but that's how flares really came to be. I mean, it was just a conceptual idea Prussian had, and, you know, we worked together on, we continue to work on the, con the concept. And then I started to just do everything else. I did the arrangement. I did everything else into that track and just, it just was like a very happy go lucky vibe. I think that's the quote that we're using is just, it feels like you're in an amusement park. It's like about that imagery about where you are when you're listening to the music. You know, do you have like a vision in your mind of, oh, this sounds like a like an amusement park or, you know, or fireworks or something like that. So that's kind of like that vibe that we get with with flares. Yeah. Awesome. Can you talk about I also know you have a track out on Parallels, which is uh, FSOE, Future Sons of Egypt's Parallels, uh, with Joanne Hogg and Time Stand Still. Can you talk a little bit about that track as well? Because I know with different sounds comes different labels and and. I like both, but it's a different like vocal track. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I um, so I, you know, as a hobby too, gaming has been a thing of mine too. And, um, you know, I, I'm very into a lot of gaming soundtracks and 
there was this one track, I think it's called oh, it's, it's Small to Pieces, something like that. I think that's what it was called. And her voice was there at the end credits of one game. Uh, the game is called Xenogears. It's a Japanese role-playing game. And um, she, you know, the vocals were just amazing to me. I was just like, oh my God, you know, you start to get like a little teary-eyed when you hear that voice. Um, I definitely encourage people to listen to that song. It's really nice. And, um, you know, I was like, I, I got to like, it wasn't, it wasn't at that moment. Cause I was like 14 years old when I played that game and I was listening to her voice and I was like, wow, this is a really, really amazing voice. And um, I think the last couple of years we had a demo that I had and I was looking for a singer for it. And I was like, I was just remembering her and I was just looking around to see if I could find her. And I, I found her on her Facebook fan page. She was there. And I, I reached out to her. I told her I was just a big fan of the game and I was a big fan of your of the song. And I wanted to know if you would be interested in working together. And um, she's just like, yeah, let's send some ideas. I gave her some inspiration, like in terms of like references, like Interstellar, the movie Interstellar. I told her that, you know, that's that imagery again, because the demo had this space vibe to it. And I was just like, you know, maybe you can get that. That's how the lyrics came to be, too, is really it's really about, you know, that theme. And um, that song that song took a while to get done. It wasn't right away because she's very busy, too. She was, you know, she was singing in a band, too, and uh, she does French music as well. So she's very talented. And, you know, I, I just love the voice. And I think once we got to it, I think there was like five different versions of this song before we got to the final one. It wasn't like it wasn't like version one or two or even three. It was five we got to because the production changed, the instrumental changed, the lyrics changed, and we were able to get something that worked well. Um, and I was able to get this this housey vibe in this track. And it's not something like, you know, the, the weird thing about me, I guess, is is that I, I know I know a lot of people say that you want to make sure that you have a signature sound that everybody can follow. But I don't I don't know if I necessarily believe that to be the case anymore, at least not for me. I mean, I guess the best way to describe it is like, um, you know, <laughs> it's weird to say this, but it's like Bob Ross doesn't always paint, you know, happy trees. He paints clouds and he paints <laughs> he paints rivers and he paints, you know, animals in, in his works and his canvas. So there's so many different things that you can do. So, you know, one minute I'm doing trance and the next track is like a progressive track or it's a house track. But, you know, lately now I've been able to do a lot of progressive -y sounds. And this is the this is the one that kind of just made it work. And I just messed around with the bass line and I was like, oh, this is cool. But I don't think trance really works for that, even though it sounds like a trance track. Um, but it has like that bump, 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 you know, so it's just um, a groovy bass line, housey kind of track. And the vocals just fit with that. It's it's not the um, the vocals in that sense, they're not like the tradition or the cat, you know, the typical trance tracks. I think for me, I, I think it's very important to make sure that the vocals forefront and there's a world message behind the song because that's why you want people to relate. I think that's a great example of how Above and Beyond are so successful with their songs is because people like Zoe Johnston and, and, and other artists, they're able to have something that people can relate to. And that's the important thing. And I think I'm, it's not me calling out anybody, but it's just like a lot of the uplifting trance tracks with vocals in them. They just get so drowned out. They sound like another element to the song, but they're not, they're not, they're don't, there's nothing there. Like I don't remember a lot of them um, lyrically, especially because you just can't hear them in the production. It's so hard to listen. That's why with these vocals, I just want them to be in the forefront. I want people to hear it. You know, that's the important part of having a vocal song. So if some people can relate to it in any way, then, then that's great. But um yeah, I would say it probably took us maybe almost a year to get the song done. Um, and usually nowadays, you know, people can get tracks done in a day. Uh, I've been able to do that in a couple of hours, if even. But now it's to the point where, you know, sometimes you got to take your time. But yeah, 
because of her busy schedule, it really took us about a year to get it done and go back. She had to go into the studio and have stuff re-recorded. And then I had to, you know, go through different versions. So the ones that we have now, I'm very happy with with what we have. So as far as remixing goes, I don't know if there, I I don't know if there will be one, maybe, maybe there will, there will be. Um, I actually did a, um, there was another version, one of my earlier versions that I felt like could work as a club version of the track. I haven't heard back yet, but um, I will definitely let people know if that does happen. But for right now, what we have is the extended after, after that. But the inspiration came from, you know, a gaming song, a song from a game, you know, that's a popular Japanese game, but um, something from 1998, you know, and I, I knew who, what her voice sounded like. And I just wanted to, to, to see if we could do something. And I'm glad that she was able to. She's never been into dance music at all or anything like that. So it was a completely different atmosphere for her. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess I have two follow-up questions with that is first, I've noticed uh, in recent years that there's been this connection between dance music producers and composers and composing like scores or game scores for music like we've seen or go to more like ambient sound because we have Still Point is a fairy playlist on Spotify and he just released that for Alias. And then of course, BT is known for doing a lot of stuff in music to film and all kinds of stuff. So have you found yourself kind of not necessarily following their, their, their way of doing things, but it's just interesting to see that there are a lot of producers out there that in dance music, but then they also go either film or gaming or, or some sort of score route. What, what is your thoughts on like that, you know, back and forth and kind of the creativity that's coming from a lot of producers? I mean, that's, that stuff is really awesome. I mean, it's cool to, you know, listen to a lot of the symphonic stuff. I, I, there was, it was a thing. It was an actual phase a couple of years ago. There was um, these scores in, in trance, like these breakdown, big breakdowns. And I think they may, they may have come back from those old songs. I don't know if it's from like uh, Adagio for strings or something like that, you know, where, where it started to influence a lot of people. I know that big, that, that big one that made people go into it was the, the Andy Blumen remix of Gaia's Tuvan track. Um, yeah. Or it does these Arabian score. I, it's some kind of, t- I don't know. I, I don't want to get the wrong terminology on that, but I think it's some Arabic scale that sound makes it so different than anything that I've ever heard. And everybody just started to do these massive breakdowns with strings and, you know, long drawn out breakdowns. But I don't know if that stuff ever really fits now. It's just kind of like, it's cool. It's a cool thing to, to experience and listen to, but um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, it's, it's a cool thing. I appreciate that stuff. I mean, I, when I like to watch movies, especially sci-fi movies, they have these nice symphonic stuff. And I know Hans Zimmer is like one the big one for that. And um, I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff in, in these songs. And, you know, some guys like BT, they're just magicians at that stuff. And for me, like I've dabbled in a little bit of it. Like if you listen to my remix of Solar Stone's A State of Mind, I do like a little bit of that symphonic work. It's just really strings though. And I was able to take it to a sci-fi theatrical level, but I don't do anything that crazy in it just because I'm not that good in the in music theory in that regard to get that far. But I can appreciate a lot of the artists that do it. I think it's crazy. It's great to have it in, in some works. And I think maybe some of that helps influence their, their, uh, their tracks, but I, that's as far as I really go with, with, with that part of it. Yeah, I was just curious because I've noticed it in recent years of like the, the juxtaposition of the genres. I guess my other yeah, question yeah. is you mentioned how a lot of people talk about, you know, having some sort of sound and, and 
attaching that with their name, but I've also noticed that everybody has an alias or many these days. Yeah. And is it, do you think the alias, like, I don't want to say like, that it's a fa I like a lot of alias, like fairy has so many and, and Armin as well as Gaia and right. so many. Do you think that the whole alias aspect, like even Marcus Schultz, his techno alias is Dakota and, do you think that's because there's this been this like pigeonhole kind of like you have to establish the sound as your artist name. And then once you do, you feel like you can't be creative outside of that sound. So you created an alias if you want to stray from that sound. Is, is that kind of how you felt with your alias you mentioned earlier? Yeah. I mean, um, I did, I did that alias. Yeah. Because it was going to be like MSJ is just the initials of my name. And so mm -hmm. for that, it was just like, okay, well, I'm going to do like house house music. So yeah, that's the only time I would ever now do it. I, in the beginning, I did like all these other aliases early on like solar navigator and things like that. But ultimately now I just said, just keep it as Mike St. Jules, just do whatever you want under that. But for something like house house or like, you know, I don't know what like uh, a lot of those other, you know, techno house DJs and everything like that. Um, you know, Martinez brothers, th that kind of sound. Um, I would definitely just put it under an alias. I mean, uh, artists like Marcus Schultz and Armin Van Buren Ferry, you know, now they don't really use so many aliases. They just use their regular names because you want people to know who you are. So if I created another alias tomorrow, you know, I don't think it, as many people would know who it is unless you keep saying Mike Singles presents Mike Singles presents um, such and such. Um so for me, um, it, it's a cool thing to do. Um, but ultimately, I think you want to keep everything under your your main name, unless it's something completely like out of left field. Like if you were making reggae music, like you're not going to I don't know if you're going to say Mike, you know, maybe I will probably. But like as a present and then eventually just say that new artist name. Right. But um, yeah, but for the most part, I don't think I don't know. I just think like when you're doing that, you're just kind of starting all over again. And you have to you have to now do a whole thing. And if you're if you're spending money on marketing yourself and all that, you now have to make a new budget to create this thing that you have to have people know who that is and make a whole new Facebook page and all that. It's just not worth it. So yeah, I mean, if you're in the realm of what you're doing, like if I'm doing trance and progressive and and stuff in that in that realm, then I would just keep it under Mike St. Jules. But if it's a completely different thing, drum and bass or whatever. I just might just do an alias for that and, and, and leave it at that, you know, say my name presents and then that's it. It's its own thing. And if it takes off, it takes off. But in the, in the modern era now, not a lot of artists are successful under that. I think the only ones like that are the names that we mentioned, Armin Ferry, you know, Paul Van Dyke's never done that really. Um, I think he might've early on, like with like one or two or some, some other tracks. Um, the only other person I think that I think has really been successful at that was Eric Prids. Prida yeah um he's the only he's the only real guy that I know that can pull it off and everybody knows who's who's who it is um you know I'm sure like you know Armin obviously rising star and, and Gaia you know that stuff is known and Ferry System F like you know and, and Marcus Schultz Dakota I mean that's 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 it like you don't want to try to make new names at that point so yeah I mean it's it was cool but now it's just focus on your main name yeah, I just it's just interesting because like they release under an alias and then you're like, you have to know the alias sound. But it's just it's just funny how like became like a thing. Like, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. About the different styles and stuff. It's just yeah, I mean, yeah, you do it as an excuse to go into the other into another into another name. But um, yeah, do what you want under under your main name. And then if it's something completely like left field, then then probably do the alias. Yeah.
So a question that I probably should have asked at the beginning, did, so you, did you self-teach yourself? Uh, you, did you do Ableton or do you do a different DAW? Yeah. I mean, uh, so now I'm doing, well, I'm, I've been pretty much FL studio. I was in the beginning, okay. I was using like Cubase. I was doing um, just different, uh, different DAWs in the beginning. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So it was either Cubase or um, Reason was like probably the most difficult one because of racks, there's racks there. And then you have to kind of like wire stuff together. I just couldn't understand all that. But um, I didn't use Ableton. And I know people have been trying to make me go to Ableton. And I mean, it's just a whole new learning curve when you have to now reset yourself and try to relearn everything again. Um, I know some people say that they were able to get it down in a couple months. But for me now, it's like I've already established myself well enough through FL Studio is what I use. And that's more than enough for me. I mean, it took me four or five years and I'm still learning now. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff I don't use in that, but uh, I, you know, I've been able to learn some of the foundations of it and able to carry on through it. And, you know, it's just my bread and butter now. So I don't really mess around with other DAWs per se, uh, maybe some editing software. Um, but even then it's not much. So FL is pretty much my, my go-to for anything like that. Yeah. I just, it's personal preference. I was just curious. Cause like, there's so many master classes and, and stuff now by people, especially because of COVID, that they're like, hey, I'll teach somebody how to use a DAW. Uh, for those that don't know that are listen to this, a digital audio workstation. Correct. Yep. Um, sorry. Uh, no, no, for no, those, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just I was just curious because uh, your, your, your more organic way of getting into uh, the industry, because you've been doing this for a while. I was just curious what your like your way of learning was because now yeah there's all these like master classes and I mean even Ferry just did one for Armada and you yeah. know like so I was just curious what um yeah I mean it was just uh it was a lot of doing things by ear and then eventually getting a MIDI keyboard and start playing around getting ideas um you know sample stuff is is it was it was things that I had to learn early on um to use in tracks but um yeah, I mean, it was really self-taught. There wasn't a whole lot um, behind that. It's just listening to other tracks, listening to how they are arranged and just, you know, literally copy a track and then just make it your own after that and just study it, you know, and that's the best way. And especially when you're learning mix downs and mastering, you can listen to another track and then just start doing it for yourself. You know, it's about trial and error, especially with a lot of these plugins. Now there's a lot of um, there's a lot of plugins and software now these days that you can create the, as long as you have, you know, the root key of what you're looking for, it creates a scale. It does all these chord progressions for you and everything. And, you know, I mean, that might help for a lot of people. Um, and I think that's a, it's a great tool. Scaler, I think is one of them actually is where you can, you know, I've seen a guy, I guess on YouTube, he took a sample and he figured out what the, the, the root chord was. And then he put it into the scalar program and the program was able to find many different variations of an actual progression. So, um, you know, little tricks like that. I mean, I guess people use, I don't use that, but, um, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, very, 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 fairly simple in the process of just like listening to samples and listening to other tracks and then just, you know, mimicking. That was really what it was in the beginning and then just make it your own, you know? So melodies are, are not easy to make. So you just kind of find something and then you try to do it your own way. And, you know, if that's the beauty of the piano roll, you can just go and change notes and find something that works. And a lot of it is by ear pretty much. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I, that flew by. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's pretty amazing to, to rain out. 
Um, yeah, so you're everywhere on social media at Mike St. Jules, correct? Yeah, everywhere at Mike St. Jules. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, fan page, Twitter. Uh, I think I said Instagram, right? Yeah. Um, my website, MikeStJules.com. Very, very simple web page, the landing page with just a couple of updates and, you know, um, a SoundCloud. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can pretty much find anything with that. I have the radio show, Universal Sounds. On various platforms now, you can say you can go to di.fm slash DJ Mixes. It's on one o'clock Eastern time every week on Mondays. And then I think throughout the week, we have other stations as well. Party 107, we have Diesel FM, um, 109 FM. So there's a lot of radio online radio stations that syndicate this. But if you don't want to go through all that, you can just go right to soundcloud.com slash Mike St. Jules and you can see the radio playlist there. And every week I upload it. I do my best every every Tuesday or Wednesday, I try to get that up on there. And uh, it's also on iTunes. And I try to really do a good job on making sure that stuff is uploaded before the end of the week. So people can tune in that way. And um, there's a podcast link on the SoundCloud one where you can actually just go to other platforms as well. I try to get it on Spotify, but I think they don't allow podcasts. I think some people are able to do it, but not everyone. So music, music, music podcasts, I don't think if oh, well. you're just like if you're just like a regular Joe Schmo, I don't think you can get it on there. I did, I did do it in the beginning, but then they flagged it. Oh, <laughs> so really? it could, yeah, I couldn't do it. But I think if it's like a regular like voice podcast, that's fine. I think, but I might have to get that clarified. I've seen other radio stations, like other um, big names, do it, but somebody like me, it wasn't able to have it on there for long. So, I don't yeah, know. I'm I'm seeing more and more get on Spotify, but yeah, it seems to be a process. Yeah, unless that's changed, um, there's like a link that you have you have to submit your XML file. Um, of the podcast and then it will just accept it and then it, that's what worked for a couple of weeks but then i don't know something happened and i just didn't work all right well i'll link all that in the description so everybody can uh and also Absolutely. your your track links to uh keep on holding uh flares and uh time stand still um awesome so thanks again for joining me and yeah uh love to do this again sometime when you have some new tracks coming out or maybe yeah, when absolutely. in person sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, no, I great. I greatly appreciate the time today. Um, yeah, there is a couple of other tracks. Um, I have one coming out in March on in June, but it's a remix um, for Thomas Heredia. Uh, it's gave you my love. It's part of, it's going to be on, it's going to be on his new EP. So the remix is just an additional. Okay. So that was his, cool. uh, that was his first release. And I have a couple of other tracks. Uh, I'm working on one with John Grand. We're doing an EP. Um, so that might get on with the label. I, don't know when but we'll 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 see we're just in the we're in the A&R process of it right now and I just have a couple of concept stuff that I'm working with Prussian and we're just going to form them into something new and um I guess I can say this here that I will be on ABGT next week um awesome. so I don't know if this is going to be next week when this video is yeah, live this will be so, up coming uh be up probably by the 8th of February so okay great so yeah we're going to be on the 12th so that's gonna be ABGT 420 so going to be high on life. Yeah. That's <laughs> high awesome. On life. So I'm going to be playing um, never before heard bootlegs, um, some older stuff that just, you know, never ultimately got released and I'm just going to play them. And I have a couple of stuff that's forthcoming that will be on there as well. So we got about eight tracks. I was able to fit eight tracks in 30 minutes. So yeah, that's going to be a good one for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And I'm looking forward to checking that mix out next week. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for having me.